Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo, joined by Chapin Hemingway, and once again, Jeremy Fisk. For those of you who don't remember, he used to be on the podcast some time ago before the most recent film he's been working on began production, uh, but he is back gracing us with his presence. So welcome back, Jeremy. I was an original member of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Um, People have actually heard from Brantley more recently than you. What a weird world we live in. <laughs> and Brantley's been doing great. I listen to those podcasts. Brantley's been doing great. Or the uh, Carrie podcast. The, this week, we're going to be discussing the newest film from Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, released on Netflix as well in, as in limited theaters. Uh, we're then going to move on to a discussion about Netflix and the release of their films, and then top everything off with our top five death scenes in Western movies. People are so easily distracted. So I'm the distractor with a little story. People can't get enough of them. Because, well, they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. And we all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us. But not us. This'll tell the tale. Buster Scruggs. You're shooting iron work. Appears to do, yes. Do you have anything to say before a sentence is carried out? Sentence? What's my sentence? (laughs) Okay, guys, so the opening chapter of this movie revolves around the titular character of Buster Scruggs played by Tim Blake Nelson, and it's about 20 minutes or so of him breaking the fourth wall, some goofy moments, um, him talking to his horse Dan, who kind of neighs on cue, and a bunch of comical plays on Western cliches, and it kind of got me thinking as I was watching it that I am taking this movie very seriously, and not in a way that I'm not like going along with kind of the humorous elements of it, but... I started to think about what is it that the Coens do here and can kind of do all the time that despite the ridiculousness of some of their movies and in particular this opening chapter, force their audience to take their movies seriously and to take them seriously. Hmm, that's a great question because somebody uh, that I was reading described this movie, uh, this, this first chapter or however you want to call it, I guess chapters apropos seeing how it's based off of a uh, fake book, but... Um, it is based off of uh, a book that you see in the beginning, but somebody described it as a Looney Tune cartoon, and I thought that was kind of perfect for it. So the fact that 
you took it so seriously is more a credit to the Coen brothers than anything else. I mean, you, you walk into a Coen brothers movie and they have plenty of movies that are meant to be comedic and hilarious and, but you always take their filmmaking seriously. You, you take the craft that they're putting in front of you very seriously because you can tell that they take it seriously. So I don't think there's anything wrong with having those feelings and I don't think you were wrong in having those feelings. You should have taken this seriously even though, as I said, it is kind of a literally a Looney Tune cartoon. Yeah, but to and we can elaborate get into on the that. details of that. But to elaborate, like imagine yourself not knowing this is a Cohen Brothers movie. You know, it the fact that we knew that going in and knowing their their resume and their history forces us to take it seriously, which you're right, is I think appropriate. But imagine not knowing it was them directing this movie. There's something in the fabric of that opening scene that forces you to not be like, This is ridiculous, I'm shutting this off. But what is that? That's a great question. I mean I, I think like to kind of piggyback on what Jeremy said, I think uh they are just filmmakers who, and this doesn't really get to your question about what what is innate in the opening of Buster Scruggs, but they they are, I think, filmmakers who have who are always having something to say, no matter what kind of genre they work in. They are they I would say they kind of oscillate between you know more serious kind of maybe even genre movies like No Country for Old Men, and their and then kind of their old familiar territory of sort of funny. Um, you know, slightly comedic, but kind, you know, also a little bit dramatic. Uh, you know, kind of quirky, uh, dark. for lack of dark movies. Um, and but they've all they've all got something to say. Like uh, you know, a serious man is a, is you know, despite its uh, title, a very funny comedy. But I think there's a lot going on in that movie. Um, and I think you you can just I. I, I don't know if this is answering your question, Lee, but I was thinking about like their dialogue um, right before the podcast today, and I was thinking that like their dialogue it just buttresses up against the line of being self conscious. You know, I think when we admire a lot of uh, filmmakers or writers' dialogues, uh, Quentin Tarantino comes to mind. His dialogue, his movies, they are they are conscious of themselves. They know that they are self-referential, for example, but also just, you know what I mean by self-conscious? Like they know that they are a movie in a way or that, they're, that they are, you know, referencing themselves. But the, the, the Coens are, are very good at writing these very kind of, um, you know, this dialogue that is, that, is, that is very interesting and almost, you know, has, these, has this rhythm to it and, and is, is almost self-conscious, but, but it isn't. It doesn't cross that line. And so you still feel very much in the movie while you're watching it. And I think really the dialogue kind of drives that. Like you realize right away, even in this kind of silly and what turned out to be my, I think one of my least favorite of the segments in the movie, uh, right away with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, you find you realize that this is an elevated, um, elevated filmmaking because I think largely the way the dialogue unfolds and specifically the way he speaks to camera and then kind of the you know the more musical elements are, um, you know they're they're they seem to be saying something Lee as you said about the genre. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up the dialogue because that was another point that I, I wanted to bring up with you guys, and it does tie in a little bit to the idea of 
of taking the Coen brothers seriously because they are so intentional with their dialogue. Like we've all heard the stories about, you know, not allowing actors to even go a little bit off script. And so watching each of these segments and, you know, the songs that Buster Scruggs is singing, but more specifically the, um, the scenes that uh, Harry Melling playing the artist, Liam Neeson's artist, um, with no arms and legs, the scenes that he's performing, I found myself kind of towards the end of those scenes being like, shit, I got to go back and listen to those again to figure out what the Coen brothers are trying to say here. Because, you know, he's got like the end of the Gettysburg Address and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, he's not just... The Coens aren't just putting in the Gettysburg Address here because, you know, it's something that people perform. They're saying something about these characters, about this scene, about Westerns, about something that's probably so far over my head that it doesn't matter how many times I watch it. But it's just more proof that you have to take just about everything that they do seriously and almost, I think, perhaps to a fault. Because, you know, I was thinking, like, even with movies like No Country for Old Men, kind of, kind of the speech, some of the speeches that Tommy Lee Jones has, and, you know, they're almost like, you know they're almost like uh, trying to, you know, create a deeper theme in the movie that you haven't even explored some t- with some of those things. And it takes you a few viewings to kind of really appreciate them. And I think that in movies like No Country for Old Men, it works, but I wonder if that's only because I've seen that movie multiple times. Well, I, I think it's an interesting question because they, they definitely command immediate respect for the world they're creating and how they do it exactly. You know, if, if I knew, you know, I'd be the one making this movie, but they're just such great. That's all it is. (laughs) No, but they, 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 their filmmaking technique is so immediate that you just kind of get sucked in and you believe the world that they are presenting to you as an audience. But it's interesting in this movie in particular because it's different vignettes and each of these vignettes are sort of different in tone especially from the i i I think they kind of get darker and darker and more i don't want to say more realistic but definitely darker and more serious as they continue on um starting with the ballad of buster scruggs which is basically a like i said cartoon musical right I, I, and it, oh, it is interesting how they but it's just to lee's point it's just interesting how they can kind of command that respect so quickly um when you have these like 20 minute segments that aren't particularly tonally that similar no not at all yeah. um I mean, I think one thing we, I just listened back to our 2001 podcast and we talked a lot about this with, with Fincher as well, but something we've discussed about directors is I think, I think they're just very intentional filmmakers. I don't feel like, um, that they are ever, um, you know, showing us things that they, you know, I, I never feel like I'm, I'm like, you know, exploring or a lot is left up to interpretation from the, the, um, the Coens. I mean, there is of course, in like, which way, well, I just mean like, I mean, there, there's of course like what Lee said about, well, why are they choosing the Gettysburg address or whatever? But I, they do remind me of Kubrick and, um, sometimes in, in, in just that, like, I, I don't feel like, um, 
I don't feel like they are they, they are very intentional and and in that sense I don't feel like we're ever left you know to um, kind of think of thi- like you know th- there's not a lot of uh, there's not a terrible amount of exploration I mean I think there is you know they say they hate subtext I think there is a lot of subtext to their movies but it's more kind of built into the fabric of that of, of sort of like like you know kind of the you know like the the, the the things that are still on the surface, they just, you know, you just have to kind of think, you just have to, they don't really, you don't have to explore them, but they are there to be had if you, you know, if you, if you choose to, I think. Um, and so to me, but I, what I think is kind of interesting about that point uh, is that uh, I think they're sometimes their movies are often quite bad. Like they've made a couple of stinkers, especially lately. Mm-hmm. And I think those movies are bad because of how intentional they are. They they kind of double down on, um, you know, elements that I that are kind of risky and and often don't work, especially you know in in, in the really bad ones. And um, I think you know those. It's interesting that what makes them so good can also make them so bad. Well, I just want to put my two cents in on the Gettysburg Address thing. I don't know how we are talking so much about that, but specifically i do not think that was intentional for any sort of reason that is supposed to imply something larger than what it is i really think all it is is that it was something of the time and then the fact that there was this sort of montage of different versions not of different versions but him saying the same things over and over again to different crowds as they got smaller and smaller i i don't think it had anything to do with um, you know, the actual speeches he was giving, but it was more showing that this performer, uh, people were losing interest in this performer over time. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I could be giving them too much credit or, I mean, even just trying to read too much into it, knowing their, knowing their reputation. Can I ask a question? Yeah. It's yeah. going to be a very simple question, but I think because of how they decided to make this movie and the fact that we have, oh God, what is it, six different stories, I believe? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yep. What was your favorite? What was your least favorite? Great question. Um, so I've been going back and forth on a couple, I think. And um, why? I think ultimately my favorite ended <laughs> up being um, the gal who got rattled Yeah. Um, with Zoe Kazan. Um and really, it came down to the end of that one, which was just like so tragic. And I just, but it see it was seemed so appropriate. Um, and I think it made that entire scene work uh, work really well. Although I have been for I guess very much the same reason that I enjoyed the um, gal who got rattled. I don't know what this says about me. The the Liam Neeson scene, the traveling show, has really started to grow on me even though I found the majority of that one to be maybe the most boring, the way that ended stuck with me the most. I think that kid that was in it, um, that Dudley? was in Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was really good. Yeah. What your, what's your least, uh, Lee? Uh, the last one, the yeah. bounty hunter wagon ride. Um, no, no question. My favorite, um, I agree. Those are, I think you named uh, some really good ones, but I think my favorite was All Gold Canyon, um, mm-hmm. the one with Tom Waits. Yeah, I, I mean, how good is he in that? Just yeah. he's so good, and it was so sort of surprising, and it was the one that kind of, I think, is sort of least like the others. 
Um, it's and, the more positive, more life affirming one. Yeah, yeah. Can we say that? I mean, as much in as much as like <laughs> it ends with it can someone being shot in the back and then him killing the another guy in a in a in a, <laughs> a gold yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, and I think my least favorite was uh, the last one. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't think the uh, the near uh, the, the near Al Gone days or whatever the one with James Franco wasn't particularly. I think that one, yeah, interesting. Wasn't but interesting. Um, I thought you, that was a. I thought that was a. The one with James Franco was a nice kind of homage to Sergio Leone and kind of a a a um, nice kind of high stakes intense scene, but it yeah. ultimately didn't feel as put together as the rest of them or it didn't feel as you know um as well made what were what were yours jeremy Uh, yeah i have to agree with you guys um it was a toss-up really between the gal who got rattled and was the the old canyon the tom wayne the tom waits one it was definitely a toss-up but i think lee you kind of hit the nail on the head there the gal who got rattled i i could see as a full coen brothers movie with that ending it was the most de- it was the one that had the most developed story it was also the longest say. i believe it was the longest it took the most time and maybe it was one that sort of had characters that developed together a little bit more than any other ones it looked like the biggest um, budget one too it seems like they probably invested the most time into it as well right uh, so that would definitely, I, I'm going to say that one's my favorite one, but that Tom Waits one, he was just so good in that. And he was just by himself yeah, for the yeah. majority of the time. And you, you, you felt for him. You felt for this. And I didn't even realize it was Tom Waits till after, honestly. Um, but you felt for this, this guy who was talking to a mountain, um, and, <laughs> In the pocket. And, uh, <laughs> I think. I think what was. Well, oh, I'm sorry, Jeremy. Go ahead. Well, I just want to say, as a locations person, they found this most pristine location there, and I, I actually got anxiety when they started digging it up because I could. <laughs> Park, the parks department decided. I like, could see like the yeah the national parks department or whoever's land it was on being like, all right, maybe we'll let you have a couple holes. Maybe if you bring in some dirt yourself, but don't really dig. And then they just kept going and digging and digging. <laughs> And, and then I'm in the back in the, in, in, behind a bush crying. <laughs> uh, um, so that's that's why it actually missed out on on your favorite. Yeah, yeah it gave you too much anxiety. anxiety I was like, oh man, I, I it's not even worth the gold this guy gets. The pocket. I, I think what was interesting about that spot in particular was sort of how I mean all the other ones are are a little bit are, are pretty dialogue driven and are kind of familiar in the in the Cohen in the way that Cohen's um, stuff usually is but that one really wasn't it there wasn't a ton of dialogue but like it, it still felt very much like a, one of their pieces like the humor sort of the oh, yeah. visual in, humor in the way the way they did the thing with the flags and the holes and figuring it out that yeah. was such a Cohen brothers move like it's such a visual cinematic move oh yeah it was great because he don't tell you what he's he does, he never says what no, he's you doing figure exactly. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. You figure it out, and you're like, oh, I yeah. get it. It's a lesson then in you, show don't tell. Yep. Yeah, and then you want to get out there and get your own. Goal. It seems easy, right? It seems. I mean, it's a lot easy. of work. It's a lot of work, but you know, we can't have somebody else dig for us. Um, well, you could. <laughs> so you what was your him. what was what was your least favorite? 
I mean, I have to say the mortal remains, even though I kind of get what they were doing there, and we can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, let's you talk know, about can, that one. We can talk about that now or talk about it later, but... Yeah, let's um, get into it. So basically, it's the end The end uh, vignette here. It's it's with um, Brendan Gleeson and... I don't... Who's the guy who plays that... The Englishman there? I, I, he's I don't on, know his um, name, but yeah, I like how Lionel. Brendan Gleeson gets top John billing in that scene. Okay, so, yeah. So basically... They're in a uh, horse-drawn carriage the whole time. It's all dialogue, unlike ever, most all the other ones where it's very little dialogue. This one is entirely dialogue, and you're kind of entirely in this, you know, three-by-four room. Yeah, um, stagecoach. But you, a stagecoach, which you eventually realize that the three people that Brendan Gleeson and this Englishman are are taking with them are are at least is how I interpreted it. Are they're taking them to the other side to death? Um, is that how is that how you guys interpreted it? Or am yes, I, in a in, okay in a, yeah. in a in a movie that has six stories that are yeah. all about death. All about death. <laughs> this one. So was this one's in all particular about, about death. <laughs> this one's all about those people's realization of death and their journey over there. It's a great idea, but honestly, it was kind of boring. Yeah, I agree. Do you, guys, do you think it was too too subtle, too vague, what they were trying to do? Because, you know, no, the, because the idea there was of that the one journey speech to death had. is... Right, but it was so it was so long-winded. And, like, all of their speeches were so long-winded in a, in, in a very Cohen-esque kind of brilliant way. But I, I felt like... Because I got the same impression too, and I, I actually had the same reaction. Like this is kind of smart. Like it's their journey to death, and they're so. How do you how do you portray a journey? And you put them all in a stagecoach, and and so that works. But I feel like they were just beating around the point so much that it it kind of lost the allure of that idea. And like and until that last speech where it got very dark, like you, it didn't feel like a a dark foreboding, you know, journey. Yeah, I don't think it worked. I agree. I think there was, um, it relies too heavily on people being like, oh, yeah, I get it. But other than that, like, what is it, what does it have to offer? Some nice cinematography. I mean, that's the whole, that's throughout. That's throughout every, but that one, that one was all green screen. And I I mean, I didn't think that one, yeah, that one looks the least. That's probably the least. Oh, even inside the, the stagecoach? Yeah. Well, that's like I just thought the it. the lighting and everything was so good. Uh, I mean, there's some great cinematography but throughout. Yes, yeah. I, but that was certainly a. And it wasn't by um, what's his name? He had a new cinematographer for this. Yeah, he had Bruno. Roger, Del- no, no, Roger Deakins. Yeah, Bruno, Bruno Delvinel, who, who shot uh, Inside Lou and Davis. So he, uh, they've worked with him before. They've worked. He's. It's interesting. Usually, you look at cinematographers and like you see their credits, and it's. Uh, several with one director or maybe two directors this guy's just bounced around a bunch like he's done a lot of great movies that look great but yeah, not a lot more. of consistent he, work with the same director he did Amelie and a very long engagement the, those French movies with uh, Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre you know yeah yeah um, oh, sophisticated he's done, so did, French. A, did a Harry Potter movie yep speaking of sophisticated big guys did who directed that was uh, that no, oh, that was no, Tim, uh, Burton. Tim Burton. The the American version of Jean Pierre, you know. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, what else you guys got? Well, there was one thing that kind of stuck out to me, which it it didn't necessarily bother me, but I guess it did bother me a little. It didn't bother me, but it definitely was like kind of in this political day and age, uh, a little bit jarring almost. And that was his portrayal of the Native Americans in this. Yeah, yeah, that did. Yeah. That's a good point. That's an interesting point. I mean, it, it like I I kind of like said to myself, well, this is just like classic Western. You know, this is how these sort of films are portrayed, and you know. And then I'm like, well, also, none of these main characters, well, not none of them, but a lot of these main characters are just as violent and terrible and awful. Yeah. Anyhow, we just don't know the other side of it. But it, but there was at least some development there. These were there was the some throwaway. They were yeah, throwaway they were bad literally guys. The savages, the yeah. you know, the bad guys, the ones that are going to come and kill you. Yeah, they were. Yeah, that literally I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this. It, um, you know. Are, are the Coens just hearkening back to the old Westerns and how that used to be portrayed? Or is it is it laziness? Well, I, mean, I think it's I think it's that we're and, and this isn't wrong or is it the climate? to feel this way. I think it's the I think it has to do with the climate that we are very sensitive to those types of things. And like I said, that's not necessarily wrong. But I think the Coen brothers were making this with the assumption maybe a naive assumption or maybe just ignoring the fact that fact and making this ode to old westerns where they are you know portrayed as the savages as you put it like i think that's all they were doing i don't think this was a i can't imagine it was an oversight and no definitely not but at the same time like i could i don't know if there's another word for it like i feel like it just wasn't necessarily you know, I think it was an homage. I think it was an homage, like everything else in this, to old westerns. And there's like little ones I picked up on, um, yeah, even in the Ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs, there was a point where he shoots off the other guy's hand very graphically, mm -hmm. and he tells him to, you know, you got another hand, pick it up. The, the exact words that were said in uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. So throughout this whole movie, there's little references to classic western cinema and i think this is just part of it well yeah. and that's what i think is and i we haven't really revealed like our thoughts on this movie as a whole and i loved it and part of the reason i loved it is has to do with sort of my love of the western genre and like the the problem with that genre is that there's so many movies that cover so many different storylines so to see them all is is almost impossible. But here they sort of brilliantly, you know, take a piece out of six different storylines that could make a great movie within that genre. And I think it's brilliant. And, you know, that's why you're able to get so many different homages and you're able to get so many different conflicts and characters and, you know, and tragedy and humor and everything throughout that I think this it makes this movie work so well and why I liked it so much. Yeah, I mean... I mean, the American Western is something so unique because it is, it's the only thing we have as Americans that, as far as film that's like simply uniquely American. And I think the Coen brothers in this were able to portray Westerns how they always are, but sort of put a fine point on it that they're, they're this sort of beautiful but extremely dangerous society and place. And I think that is something that we as Americans, 
I don't want to say strive for, but it's like something that's so like distinctly us that we kind of have a, I don't know, like we look for it, you know, we, 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 we long for that in a weird way. Yeah. Manifest destiny. Yeah. It's like an American characteristic. Yeah. I mean, like death lies around every corner and we know that. But also, these characters are still searching for some sort of, you know, every one of them is looking for some sort of, you know, either fame, fortune, uh, another life, another life, a good life, like you know, the the lady in the um, the gal who got rattled, she's looking for a happy family. Same with that guy in that, um, Liam Neeson, even though he's, he's, you know, kind of a terrible person. And he's looking for his, for better word, his meal ticket. Um, James Franco is looking to get rich quick. Uh, Buster Scruggs just looking to be legendary, which I think he actually accomplishes it. And of course, Tom Waits is looking to find gold. So there's all these people just, I don't know. It's just something so, like I said, uniquely American and something you really can, that they, they put a nice fine point on in this movie. And I, I have to really applaud them for that. And I think that's where this movie really works in the end. Thinking about revenge. Where's Robert? Where's your husband? It tears at the soul. Where's your brother? But it can also be a weapon. I'm done with running and I'm sick of hiding. Power is making decisions. And whatever course you are charting, I choose you, my husband. We need to unite Scotland. Robert the Bruce is an outlaw. Any man or woman who would give shelter to him or his ranks is to be executed without trial. The people are desperate for justice. I serve Robert Bruce! I think we've talked about um, Netflix and the kind of its role in the sort of film community in Hollywood um, a couple of times over the past uh, eight years that this podcast has been on and off. And um, I, I do I don't want to you know talk it too much, but I I do think I, I was listening to some other podcasts and I've read a couple of things that um, this movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, uh, Outlaw King. And um, Roma, which of course is coming out in December, which is supposed to be fantastic by um, Alphonse Cuaron, um, are all kind of Netflix's efforts to win an Oscar, basically. And they are, I think they released Ballad of Buster Scruggs in theaters. They did a little bit with the Outlaw King, and then I think Roma has, is going to have a pretty big release. Um, but they are intended and were made to be on Netflix. And I don't know. I just think it's worth talking about um, how we, what we think about that. What we think about Netflix as we've talked a lot about Netflix as, as you know, making TV shows. And I think they've done that quite successfully. They're probably the most successful screen uh, streaming service 
and arguably the best uh, producer of TV shows, um, you know, around. But this, the they've been less successful with movies, and so, um, but recently they've started to work with more filmmakers. I think they're, um, uh, what? I think they're starting to do. Um, <laughs> sorry, someone just opened the door. I think they're starting to do these things that are like, you know, they're they're pushing to like be considered more serious, you know, um, and uh, I. I don't know. I, I was I think I think in particular this movie is a perfect movie for Netflix. You know, it's like a it's a six part thing that you can watch, you know, in pieces, which I did unfortunately. I mean I would have loved to come you know, watch this in the theater, but I think, you know, if you have to, this is a good movie to watch in, in pieces. Um and um I don't know, what do you guys think about all this? Well, well I think I, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was just gonna say I like kind of take your question and propose another question. Okay. Like what do they ultimately Netflix as a company, what do they ultimately get out of an Oscar? I I think it just I I I think it makes them seem like the, a legitimate movie studio. I mean, they are trying to be I you know, they've got I mean, they've they're investing a ton of money in content they've seen they i think like i said they seem to have won the tv um the the tv argument but and now they're moving into film and if you want to make movies you got to compete to be to win oscars i guess or at least someone like there thinks like that. did it help amazon with um manchester by the sea totally they i mean Am- there were nothing before that well they or? weren't nothing yeah. obviously i mean it doesn't matter i mean of course <laughs> it days those billions of dollars but they invested something like 40 million dollars into that marketing campaign to, well, probably more than the budget of that movie. That was well, let no, me, it was like ten times the budget of that movie. Let me bring something up that I think is important because take the take the streaming element out of it with Netflix and even Amazon for argument's sake. And you know the these movies are getting re- at least limited releases in theaters so that they are eligible for Oscars. But what's interesting, I find what's interesting about Netflix is that we scrutinize it as a producer more than any other production company. Every other movie that's made, the first thing we look at is the director, the actors, the writer. With Netflix movies, we say, this is a Netflix production. How come all their movies suck? How come they can't make a good movie? Is right. this finally the good movie that Netflix is going to make? What, like, how come, how come we don't talk about how much Warner Brothers movies suck? You know, like, And they make plenty of shitty ones. It, so I think it's interesting that... We hold them to a higher standard as a as a producer just because they essentially get more attention because they stream their movies. Well, I don't think that's no. I I, listen. I disagree with you a little bit. I think that's. I don't think that's necessarily true. They they don't. They are they are a new player. They are and they've come and they are trying to change the landscape of 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 filmmaking. They're trying to move people away from seeing things in the theaters and watching things at home. They're they're trying to be a disruptor and. But I think that's a different argument. I think the I think the streaming versus theater, you know, uh, release I think is is another debate. But I think as a, as a movie producer, as a production company, you know, the quality of the movies that they're producing, you know, I I don't think is really I you know I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the percentage I feel like, is, I mean, maybe because right now they're producing so much 
And whenever you have that, there's going to be a lot more stinkers than there's going to be hits. But right. I feel like the percentages have to be close to your, you know, your your big studios that produce a lot of a lot of movies. Sure, that's fine. And I, I mean, I think that's 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 not really what I was asking about. I mean, I'm more just thinking about them. I mean, do you think they could be a legitimate player? Also, do you think how do you guys feel about watching these possible Oscar contenders at home? I mean, they're nice for the podcast because we're all super right, busy yeah. and we can watch them easily and on our own time. But um, this one in particular, I thought, like, worked really nicely for that because it, it, it almost felt like a little miniseries. Um, but I don't know. Like, I felt in in this, and I, I probably should have mentioned this on the last podcast or two podcasts ago, the, the Stars Warren podcast, but, like, to me – you know, one thing I kind of fell in love with with A Star is Born, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, is this, like, idea of it being this kind of breakout success, this kind of, like, you know, these uh, an unknown st- or rather an untested star, you know, making a really debuting with a, an, an amazing performance, and then an untested director, you know, his first time directing coming out with, you know, that's sort of the romance of the Oscars. And I have to admit that uh, I think... Netflix, at least, I mean, I think I would love, I loved Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I think I'd love to see it get some nominations. I don't know that it will, but the romance of like that theatrical experience, not only just like, you know, watching the movie in a, in a theater, but just like the idea of it kind of being that special thing that you have to go out and see and that like, you know, people need to go see and can't necessarily have access to right away in the, in their home affects that kind of romance for me. Yeah. And I, I think, I, I agree. And I think like Jeremy, you were saying well, what you were asking is, you know, the value in an Oscar nomination for Netflix, you know, we'll see, you know, perhaps more and more, you know, well-respected directors making movies produced by Netflix. And, and, you know, I love the convenience of it, especially these days with when it's hard to get to the movies. But, you know, I was going through researching my top five and I'm looking at all these clips from Westerns on YouTube on my computer and I'm like, Jesus, this was incredible in the theater. And that's the place that, you know, some of these movies just absolutely need to be seen. And there's no substitute to it when it comes to certain types of movies. Uh, hang on, my the heater's turning on. I want to shut it off. Otherwise, you guys will hear it. Hang on. Well, my two cents on this is um, I agree with you, Chapin. Like, if we ever lose the movie-going experience... I'm going to be sad about that for sure. But I'm saying that out of one side of my mouth while the other side of my mouth is saying, look, we get to see these movies quicker, easier, more conveniently around our schedules. And then we, us three, can talk about them easier. Yeah, great. So, you know, that part of it is great. But also going to the theater and sitting in that room, that'll never get old. But if Netflix wants to be a part, like if Netflix wants to get into this world, which they certainly are right now, what better way to do it than to buy your way in and have the Coen brothers and have Martin Scorsese make movies for you? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's a, it's it's great. I just I just I, I wonder. It always seems like these filmmakers are apprehensive about it. It's a, you know I feel like they go in into the experience and they're like yeah. You know, Netflix is great to work with. They let us do whatever we want, but it's on Netflix. You know, it's <laughs> um, right. Well, I can well, say Spielberg's as somebody who's been a big naysayer of, for it. 
Well, as somebody who works for Netflix and has worked for Netflix a couple times, but is currently working for Netflix on a movie, I, there is no difference in the process. I mean, there's no, there's no difference as far as money that's being spent in the process and how we're filming the movie. It's a different beast because of the director I'm dealing working with, but um, there's no real difference in how that movie's being made than any other movie. Uh, it's just Netflix happens to be the one producing it compared to Paramount or Disney or whoever. Right. I get. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I I I, I kind of go back and forth. I I've been feeling like, man, I have this amazing television. Netflix is is really been. I think that might be one thing, Jeremy, that they have done that you can talk about is they 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 make these movies. They make all their content in 4K, and so. When it comes on your screen, it's like it it it, it looks incredible, it, you know. And a, a lot of movie theaters aren't even in 4K yet. Um, and you've got this beautiful presentation. If you've got the right sound system, the right the right TV, you can have a very you know you know maybe even a more true experience than you could have in some really shitty movie theaters. But you know there is always that like second screen distraction you know and like the, being oh yeah looking at your looking phone, at your phone or, or needing to go to the bathroom yeah, or you know or, or like me i have a it. have a couple of bottles of wine while you're watching the movie and then <laughs> but <laughs> that um, doesn't sound like us at all <laughs> but you know and then i had to, I, I went to uh, i went to see widows the other day as we discussed and i was just like enthralled that whole movie like i couldn't i i don't like there was nobody around me was distracting me. Like I, there was a woman opening some loud candy behind me, and I didn't even care. He said, like, "Shut the fuck yeah, up, lady." <laughs> and uh, and so like like before I make you a widow. But but I feel like that that's a unique experience, you know. Like I usually am kind of Wait. uncomfortable in movie theaters. So yeah, it doesn't make sense, Lee. <laughs> okay, I just want to make yeah. sure. No, I realize it. he's going to kill her husband. <laughs> okay, just because gotcha. of the title of the movie, he yeah. thought it through. I'm when glad you guys it. are listening, you pricks. <laughs> like I, I was listening to Jeremy, and then I started thinking about that point. Yeah, no, no, it's a good, it's a good point. Yeah, we, we should kill <laughs> people and make them into widows. Excellent point, Jade. <laughs> he just sees like I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, to wrap up the Netflix discussion, it's where it's going. Like, ultimately, it's where it's going. I would be so sad to lose the theater. But wait, but to that but, point, we aren't. Like, we had the second most successful October of all time in movies. Great. And So, it's a balance, then. Yeah. We're just going to find that balance, which is not terrible, to be honest. Not terrible. Yeah, I say go for it. If you want to put more money in, you want to make more content, as we've talked about with TV, you know, you're more power to you. No, and theaters have finally, you know, caught up a little bit. And to all the failures that MoviePass was, it launched, you know, AMC doing their uh, membership and other theater chains are going to follow suit. And there's going to be con continuously ways to make, you know, going to movies not only more perhaps more affordable but incentivized if you're you know paying for three movies a week or something it's going to force more people to go and i think that's going to continue to evolve and and become a good thing as well let's move on to top fives all right i got all right you want me to intro this please yeah. do 
So this week on our top five, we're going to do our top five Western death scenes. As we saw in the Battle of Buster Scruggs, death is around every corner. Everyone has a gun. It It seemingly happens every 10 minutes in the West. I'm surprised anyone makes it to 40. Yeah, lucky for you guys, it's gotten a lot easier to get to Oregon. (laughs) Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. But I, I say go the old school way. <laughs> yeah, that's what we've actually been doing. Yeah. We're on our that's way. That's our plan. That's our plan for your bachelor party. <laughs> Me and Lee are going to leave eight months in advance. Yeah. We literally die in like two hours of yeah. some disease that you can't even no, get anymore. Probably just alcohol. <laughs> Dysentery. <laughs> oh, yeah, because we would get so excited. Yeah. At the beginning of that, it, and we drink so much. We'd be so excited to do that to yeah. like go across the country in a wagon. You find that us was, just like yeah. literally in like Framingham, yeah, <laughs> in in costumes. You broke down in just, Worcester, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, all right. So, so that would be a top five death scene right there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Why don't? All right. Who wants to go first here? I'll go first. All right. right. Okay. Um, My criteria was (laughs) uh, they couldn't all be from Unforgiven, I guess. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Um, So my my, uh, number five is an ode to the Coen Brothers, and it's from a a Coen Brothers movie that I really would like to revisit because I did not care for it when it first came out, and that's True Grit, and that's uh, Dumb Hall Gleason's character in True Grit. Uh, Do you guys remember his death? When he's shot and he goes, I'm dying, and he's in the <laughs> he's, he's in the cabin, and um, I don't know, I don't know why that that it was just it's, it was sort of sort of so funny and so Coen Brothers that uh, I don't know it just I, that that was what the the one kind of memorable thing I remember from that movie. Don Hall Gleason has perhaps the most impressive resume since he started being in movies. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. All right, Lee, you're number five. All right, so my Any criteria, criteria? My criteria was that they couldn't all be Sergio Leone movies. Good. Um, but Did you have one? I did. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, keeping with the, <laughs> the tradition of this podcast and Chapin's number five, I also have a scene from a Coen Brothers movie. I feel like my list is a bit uninspired, so I apologize. But it is actually a scene from No Country for Old Men. Uh, it's when Anton Chigurh kills Carson, Woody Harrelson's character. Um, really, I just love that scene, and when he kind of says, like, you realize how insane you are, and he's like, you mean the nature of this conversation? He's like, the nature of you, and then the phone rings, and he kills him. Yeah. I just think it's, like, I mean, so so many of Chigurh's kills are intense and sort of incredible filmmaking, but that one, to me, was just sort of summed them all up. I'm just like, here's the guy that just kind of knows him and feels like because he knows him that he can you know sneak past him or beat him or but he just is totally at his, at his mercy when it comes to facing him yeah so i the only criteria i had was it had to be an actual western of the time period uh, so i couldn't put no uh, country for old men if i did I, that wouldn't be the death scene it would be the one with the uh by the side of the road with the cattle yeah, the, thing the where, yeah. says, I where thought it about says that one too. hold still yeah. and the guy's like alright <laughs> this should this should go well <laughs> <laughs> whatever you say 
Yeah, well, if you say hold still. Um, <clears throat> that being said, my list, I guess, is probably... Uh, it's probably the most... I don't know. It's not cliche, but it's just... It has the ones you're thinking of, I would say. But no, my number five... A lot of people want to go with uh, the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm, I'm going with the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West, which anytime I get a chance to talk about the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West, I will, as I think it's cinematic genius. Um, but basically, it's the scene where Charles Bronson's character uh, gets off the train he opens the door to one side of the train. No, nobody comes out. They turn. The bad guys turn around. He gets off the other side of the train as the train leaves. You see him standing there before the other three guys. And um, we'll just say it doesn't go well for those three gentlemen. It's a brilliant scene. Cinematic <clears throat> jerk-off material. Oh, yeah, 100%. Okay, my number four is from a movie I don't think either of you guys have seen, um, but it is called bone tomahawk (laughs) (laughs) i saw this come up on a bunch of lists when i was looking yeah um it's great i haven't seen great beard work by kurt russell um and i just remember is the one thing i remember from that movie same as the last pick um was this guy they get like ambushed by a bunch of like neanderthal cannibals and taken into their like cave and then one of the deputies is uh like cut in half while still alive it's pretty cool all right, <laughs> put that on the top of my Netflix queue. That's not really a thing anymore, Lee. Oh, I get three DVDs a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, what's a DVD? Yeah, right. All right, my number four is from Three Ten to Yuma, the new newer version. I actually never saw the original, uh, and it's when Ben Wade kills Ben Foster's character at the end of the movie um i love the end of that movie how like ben wade is still the bad guy but is protecting and sort of with christian bale as they're running away from his old his own posse um so and then ben foster who plays charlie prince is sort of a cliched bad guy sidekick of uh russell crowe's ben wade um uh but in the end Wade gets gets him and shoots him right in the chest point blank. Why does he do that again? Uh essentially because he was he was I think cuz he shot Christian Bale. Or I can't remember if it happened after that. But it was right before Wade gets on the train and essentially does escape. But yeah, I think that, it was cuz he right killed I think it's cuz he shot Christian Bale and then after that he killed him, but I can't remember which happened first. I think you're right. I think he shot Christian Bale. It's been a while since I've seen that, but it's actually a pretty good movie. I agree. It's been... It, I saw that in the theater by myself. Um, wasn't a good time in my life, so... We'll just, that's all I remember about that. I snuck in a Coors Light. Oh, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> this gets worse just and worse. You, just to give you an idea how... T- how low it was how low a point it was now now you sneak in like sam adams yeah seriously <laughs> okay is it your turn jeremy things get real good you always sneaking in like treehouse or something uh my number four is a scene from uh robert altman's mccabe and mrs miller oh, f- matt 
And I have to be honest, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. I've seen it twice, but it's been a long time. So I had to revisit this scene. And it's with the great Keith Carradine. Mm. He uh, he just had a great night over at the local uh, brothel. And um, he needed to get some new socks. He wore out his socks, as one does. <laughs> And uh, he needed to get new socks at the store. And um, <clears throat> one of the locals there uh, basically was just looking for a gunfight. So uh, uh, Keith Carradine's character um, is kind of an aloof character. He's just sort of happy-go-lucky. And this guy's like, and he tells the guy, oh, I have a gun, but, you know, I'm not very good at shooting it. And uh, so the guy's like, well, let me see it. Maybe I can fix it. Obviously, reaches for it. Guy shoots him into the water. Dead. Great scene. Sound effects and everything. Don't even need to watch the movie now. Okay. My number- Jeremy's gunshot sound sounded a little bit like the wet fart sound we were making earlier, Chapin. That was a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, mine number three is from a, one of my what a really really underrated movie and one that I can't recommend enough and it's the assassination of Jesse James oh, by the coward Robert uh, Ford. Good pick, but it is not it, it is it is not the titular assassination. It is the killing of Ed Miller, played by Garrett Dillahunt, by Brad Pitt, who plays Jesse James. Great pick. Do you remember that, that one? That's the one pick. where he's on the horse and he's walking behind him. And um, yeah, that was I, 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 I'm always remembering the deaths that kind of stick out for me in these movies. And those are the ones that do not the not the big ones that, oh, the title is named after it. Oh, my number three. Okay. Cross off. <laughs> my number three is the assassination of Jesse James. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. <laughs> and it is the assassination of Jesse James by said coward. Robert Ford and one thing I really like remember very vividly about this movie and I'm sure I've mentioned this to you guys before as well and I saw it in the theater and the sound in this movie was so jarring the gunshots were so loud Mm. and it was it and this happens happens again here and this this scene like much of the movie kind of draws out slowly you know uh Brad Pitt stands up on the chair he's looking at the picture you see the reflection and and then just bang like so loud loudest thing in the scene and it just even though you know exactly what's going to happen it takes you so off guard and it's done so well and like it's we've it's amazing how much we talk about this movie because well, it is so well made we've said this before but it's not ultimately I a great o- movie i know that's what i was gonna say i think it's one of the like in the history of cinema one of the best technical cinematic experiences you can have but ultimately, I don't think it's a great movie, and I think that's where it, I think you need to go back and watch it. I think it is a great movie. You th- you you do yeah. beyond its technical prowess, yes. even with that ridiculous voiceover. I I actually have come to like that because I hated that when I first saw it. But anyways, it's funny that you say that about spoilers, Lee. I, I imagine that he gets shot, and then someone's like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> and he even told us who kills him. <laughs> I love how his head smacks the painting. And, I know. It's awesome. Yeah. That would be funny if it was called The Assassination of Jesse James uh, by the coward Robert Ford. And then in parentheses, spoiler alert. 
<laughs> Spoilers. All right. Speaking of um, uh, title characters being killed, my number three, although I don't, if I remember correctly, you don't actually see him get killed. There's a freeze frame, but it's uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, the end scene. Yeah. Uh, when they had a I like a to think that with, they made it. We, they could have. Yeah. They could have. They, there's a lot. There's a freeze frame. The guns keep going. And that's all you know. So, but uh, I think they have a shootout with some sort of Bolivian yeah, police Bolivians. or something like that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely that freeze frame is uh, something cinematically I will always remember. That's another. I actually went back and revisited uh butch and sundance not too long ago Mm -hmm. it's it's it to me it doesn't stand up with and with like a lot of the classic westerns that i love but it's just it's a tight movie like it it, like the it's more about those two than anything yeah like it's just those i mean those two actors are so good with each other that they're fun to watch but Mm -hmm. the script is very i mean there's some like moments with Catherine ross that i could do without but the the script is very tight and it just kind of moves very swiftly and it's easy to watch. It just doesn't have kind of that like you, you don't know, like the raindrops are falling. Yeah, that I could have done without the bike ride. You could have yeah. done with that. <laughs> yeah, um, but it doesn't have like the scope and like grandeur that I love about westerns. Okay, uh, my number two is also from McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but it is the death of McCabe. Yeah, I thought about that the one. The one in the snow. Yeah, he basically gets hunted. Yeah, but and doesn't he just kind of like die of exposure? Or is it, does, is he get yeah, shot? Yeah, no, he gets shot. He gets shot, and then um, he shoots the other guy. The other guy comes around kind of similar to uh, the Tom Waits scene in, in Buster Scruggs. And then he just can't make it back because he's trapped in like four feet of snow. He just can't make it back. Hmm. I've never seen this movie. Really? Yeah. I'm actually uh, not very well versed in Altman. I've probably only seen half a dozen, if that, of his movies. I'd love to go and watch a bunch of them. Um, All right, my number two. So I I try to think a little bit outside the box for some of my picks um, because I suspected there would be a lot of classic Westerns on here. Um, and not that this is particularly outside of the box for us to discuss. It is, I think, when it comes for Westerns. Uh, it's from Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained when mm-hmm. Dr. Schultz kills Leonardo DiCaprio's Calvin Candy. Um, he's basically, you know, he's about to leave. He's fed up. He hates C- Calvin. He doesn't want to talk to him anymore. And he says, and uh, Calvin Candy insists that he shakes his hand finally says that he absolutely has to or he won't let him leave and they walks up and says i couldn't resist and he shoots him <laughs> sam jackson starts screaming and crying before the the shootout really starts to escalate it's embarrassing to say and i'm whatever it's i'm gonna say it anyhow i i i basically looked up the time period of the history of american western and the history of american slavery to see what where the overlap was because of Django and to see if it actually fit into my criteria. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. How, how when does when do westerns start like age-wise? I thought it was more geographical. 
No, well, I wanted it to be like that sort of classic American, like American Western, and I think it's like well, goes right around that time period. The good, 1860s. bad, and the ugly is is during the Civil War because they have that scene right. where they dress well, which as soldiers. is pre pre eighteen sixties. Yeah, so like the big push west was post Civil War. So this, right, yeah, no, they were the big push west was right. Like it, they they overlap a little bit, but. Yeah, well, the Civil I, I had War to... was was the 1860s. I thought. Yeah. All right, this is embarrassing for us now. They were all googling yeah. Civil <laughs> War. Yeah, it was, was like it, it ended in 1865. Yeah, because yeah, of Lincoln and everything, you know. Yeah, Lincoln. Um, I was looking up when Oregon became a state because that's a good indication, and it was 1859. So you're you're right. Um, you're right, Jeremy. It was pre. I mean, if they're going to become a state, there's got to be a lot. At least some people there. Yeah, so it doesn't quite overlap, but there's a little overlap from my research of Googling slavery yeah. America. This is, so So Jeremy gets off work early. <laughs> First thing he Googles is slavery in America. Yeah, gotta be. All right, my number two is, um, I mentioned it earlier in this podcast, but it's the man who shot Liberty Valance. It's Liberty Valance's death scene. Oh, he dies? Um, Spoil! Oh, all right, these are right. spoilers. <laughs> it's top five death scenes. Uh, yeah. So what's so great about this one is n- not only your your main character Jimmy Stewart's character is the town hero because he kills Liberty Valance, but then you eventually realize <clears throat> he wasn't the guy who did it. He got shot by Liberty Valance and then picked up like picked up his gun with the other hand and was about to shoot him and obviously John Wayne from the side knocked him down um but nobody else knows that Jimmy Stewart's character goes on to become whatever town manager administrator senator whatever it was um and John Wayne's character you know rides off into the sunset I like how you have a movie with what it opens and you have Jimmy Stewart and Lee Marvin and everybody's supposed to figure out who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. They're supposed to figure it out? Well, no, but you have those two in the, in the movie. It's pretty clear what's going to be what. Yeah, you would think so, but then uh, Once Upon a Time in the West had Henry Fonda as the bad guy. That's true. And he, he was great in it. Chapin? Your number one. My number one is the death of Quick Mike in Unforgiven. Which one's Quick Mike? Quick Mike is the guy who has a little pecker and gets you know cuts the cuts the woman up, cuts her, uh, cuts her tits, cuts her cheek, probably okay, yeah. cut up her cunny. David <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to recite that scene. Uh, no, I just watched that movie the other day. Uh, and it's uh, just so good, Lee. I know you're like not a big it fan really of that is. movie. I have to see. No one, I have to see no it one again. really understands why. Um, it's because I haven't seen it in a long time. I have to see it again. I remember Jeremy got me the the lovely gift of a the HD DVD version mm-hmm. of that movie, which was lovely. Well, I knew it would be obsolete. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, man, what a what a great movie, and I'm very much looking forward to. Um, the what's it called? The uh, his next movie, the The uh, Mule. The Mule. Thank you. Yeah, it looks good. All right, my number one, Jeremy. Funny you should mention Henry Fonda. Uh, I have got the scene, which is perhaps 
one of the best introductions to a villain in movie history when Frank kills the little boy in Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, like, not only is he, I think, one of the ultimate villains in cinema history, but the way that that he comes onto the scene, essentially, in that scene is is so good. It's so Sergio Leone. I mean, he, he sort of does reuse that a lot, but it doesn't matter because it's so amazing. Um, and then just... Yeah, and just when you're not sure, you know, if he's all that bad just because he killed a family that probably owed him money probably wasn't all that good he just kills a little kid too so that's my number one yeah that's a great performance um in that movie and my number one also is from unforgiven it's a different um death scene it is when the schofield kid kills that guy on the shitter yeah that's that was mine oh that's the same one yeah Oh, I didn't realize it was the same guy. Oh, for f- Nobody oh. has Clint Eastwood killing Gene Hackman. <laughs> it's up there, but the reason that the other yeah, one... It's so about, impactful for that it's guy, so for impactful. the kid. Yes, exactly. The whole movie's about kind of anti-violence, and he talks about, or like right afterwards, he says, it, it don't seem real how he's never going to breathe again, ever, yeah. all so on account good. of pulling a trigger. So and then. Good. And then Clint Eastwood says, hell of a thing, killing a man, taking away all he has and all he's ever going to have. Now that'll wrap things up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Please check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Email us any feedback at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. We promise we will read them on the podcast. Subscribe. Uh, it doesn't even have to be good. Yeah. The email, I mean. Like, we read, yeah, <laughs> we read it. We'll read anything. <laughs> We read it. <clears throat> I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee. Hell of a man shooting him when he's taking a shit. <laughs> why the why the hell of a man? Sorry, I'm at a hell of a thing. Jesus. Hell of a man. Hell of a thing. I mean, you've got to be a hell of a man to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because it is most vulnerable.